Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Justin. Thanks for joining us today, Justin. Justin is my cousin, and for our loyal fans out there, he's the one I often reference growing up together watching and re-watching great movies in our youth, almost exclusively including Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and yes, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Justin conveniently likes other movies too. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by, well, all the co-hosts as we have agreed to take on the trilogy over the coming weeks. Today, we'll be jumping into the adventure sci-fi film Back to the Future by Robert Zemeckis. Zemeckis is also known for Forrest Gump, Contact, and the other two Back to the Future films. Back to the Future came out in 1985, which was a big year in the film industry. You also had Goonies, Breakfast Club, Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome, which is the third, and another Michael J. Fox movie, Teen Wolf. We follow Michael J. Fox's character, Marty McFly. For some reason, Marty is friends with an eccentric scientist named Doc Brown, who finally has realized his dream of creating a time machine, and then things go awry. Marty is sent back to 1955, and he has to work his way through a weird love triangle uh, to make sure that his, two, his parents actually fall in love so that his family can exist. Uh, a lot of fun ensues from there. When I was younger, I used to go to my Aunt Jeannie's house, and my Aunt Jeannie had a bunch of religious VHS tapes and then two other tapes that were somewhat of interest to me. When I was younger, there was Wizard of Oz and there was Back to the Future. So pretty much every time I went to visit Aunt Jeannie and all the, I was an only child, so all the adults were doing their thing, I'd throw in Back to the Future and have a great time watching this movie. So it's something that just really is ingrained in my youth. And I really thought that this is an example of a movie that truly held up over the years. I think it's very enjoyable for audiences who enjoyed it in their youth and even the youth of today. And that's why I wanted to talk about it because I just really like this movie. Uh, Tom, what are your initial thoughts and experience with Back to the Future, specifically part one? Um, I, I've seen the movie before as a child. I, I don't have this golden memory that you guys have of of these kind of cla you know classic films um but i i saw the movie as a child and i thought it was i, I liked it I, I just you know recently watched it again for this and I, I enjoyed it too i was surprised how much i enjoyed it uh do i have any kind of big thoughts on this um not not really <laughs> not in particular but it, it was, it's enjoyable, you know, the, the first film, especially compared to the latter two. <laughs> Sounds good. And we will definitely get that, uh, get uh, into those in the, in the next two weeks to come. KJ, I'm going to turn it over to you. So I've watched this movie countless times. I absolutely love it. Um, the most recent watch through I watched with my daughters. It was their first time watching the movies and they love them. Um, but my favorite time watching this movie, and I'm going to go into a bit of a story here, so buckle up um my wife had invited the whole neighborhood some friends some family over for a barbecue 
that was going to feature Back to the Future on the side of the garage when it got dark. So we set up a projector, we mounted speakers on the garage, we had video cord extenders to make sure everything was connected and worked. We tested it the day before, it looked, it sounded great. We were ready to go. So now there's over 100 people in the backyard, a bunch of kids sitting on blankets. My wife had made these little candy boxes and handed them out. The adults are sitting on chairs. Some are standing over by the old timey popcorn machine we had going. I put the DVD into the PlayStation 2. It was an old PlayStation 2 we were using. And the sound from the DVD menu starts blasting out of the speakers. It sounds great. But there's no video playing. The projector is just cycling through blue, searching, black, blue, searching, black, over and over again. Everybody's looking around. The kids are like, Meh. the adults kind of start taunting me good naturedly, but like, I thought we were going to watch a movie. So I start looking around. I look at the projector. I look at the PS2. I look at the receiver. It all looks good. I start following the cords and I realize the video cord was no longer connected to the extender. So I'm standing in front of everybody. The Back to the Future music blasting behind me. I'm being lit up blue. It's going dark. I'm lit up blue. And I'm holding the video cord and the extender. And just like Doc, I connect them together and everybody cheered and we watched the movie and it was it was great. It was a great experience to watch the movie with everybody. Um, everybody from three years old up to the oldest person there. They all watched every frame of that movie. Like Nick said, this is timeless. I love this movie. Great. And that feels like a little bit of a setup. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> One day I'll be on a podcast and I'll have to tell this story. <laughs> uh, J- Justin, uh, what, what are your, what's your experience with Back to Future and any initial thoughts? Uh, it's, I mean, it's a classic. I used to watch it at my friend Joey's when we were young a, a lot. And the ride at Universal Studios. Was, was, I don't know if you guys have ever been on. Yeah, on yeah, I did. Yeah, it's, actually, it's back pretty in the good. Day. I think it, it actually closed a few years ago. I think, but that was a favorite too. And yeah, just a good, good story. I was a little worried. Like it started off a little slow, so I was like, oh, I hope it's not one of those. When you get older, you rewatch it, and it's not the same. But after ten minutes, it started picking up, and I watched it last night again. So yeah, it's great. It's great. You know. Yeah, I, I, I really did enjoy the rewatch. Uh, I watched it with my wife last weekend. And uh, I know, unfortunately, I don't have the same memories of the next two. Um, but I am looking forward to rewatching the whole trilogy for, for these discussions to come. Two is pretty good. I mean, yeah, you know what? It's you hear different opinions. From what I remember. I yeah, some people think three might have actually been a little bit of a sleeper and, and, and maybe actually stronger than two. But when, <laughs> when I look at them, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, one definitely, I think we would probably agree, stands out above the, the rest in the trilogy. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Now, before we get into the meat of this, uh, Justin, we ask all our guests a critical question that really guides the whole rest of this conversation. What do you think is the best snack to enjoy while watching Back to the Future, specifically part one. Pepsi One. Pepsi One. <laughs> wow. I thought I thought we were going to back to like Pepsi Clear or something back in the day. <laughs> if you're uh, you know, if if you're in at least whenever it came out. If you're not in 1955. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Because <laughs> uh, yeah, when he went back there it didn't exist, but 
that's that's perfect. I think that's, it's disappeared that, again, right? I, I don't see them. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was one of those things that was promotional during that time period. And that's why it right. made me think of when they had, I think it was Pepsi Clear at another juncture that they were testing out like all these different yeah. soda drinks. This movie is remarkable for its product placement. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how much money they made off of product placement, but it, it is a lovely example of it. I think second only to Talladega Nights. Yeah, so yeah, Goodyear tires, Toyota, a lot of yeah. Toyota was Toyota, Toyota was they had the um the they had the whole radio commercial about Toyota, and then yeah. at the end he gets a Toyota. Yeah. <laughs> this is yes, I love this. This is the '80s up and up. <laughs> oh, that is that is so great, and you're absolutely right. I'm sure we'll get into that and a few other items uh, as we continue on. But I'm gonna jump uh, right into the movie quiz section. But before we get into it, uh. You know, as we're going to be exploring the entire Back to the Future trilogy in the weeks to come, we thought we'd make it a little bit more interesting to keep a running tally of the points for each of the co-hosts, as well as the collective power of the guests. So to make this obnoxiously fair, each host will also have a buddy guest with whom they will share points. Trust me, the math works. My buddy will be the next week's guest, Tom's buddy will be the following guest, and KJ's buddy is none other than today's guest, Justin. All right, Justin. So we're sharing points. Every point you get, I get Four two okay. for the whole King caboodle. So let's do it. Huh. Yeah, because what happens is uh, every episode, one of us actually hosts. So, of course, we could get no points. So we just wanted to make it, as I said, obnoxiously fair. <laughs> you can thank me for that one. I really pushed hard. <laughs> it's time for Movie Quiz. In round one, each of these questions will be worth one point. The categories are... Great Scott, this is heavy, and the power of love. Justin, as you are our guest, we will give you the first choice at the category. Great Scott. Great Scott. It's time for question one. Doc Brown has finally done it. By harnessing the power of plutonium to energize his creation, the flux capacitor, Doc has succeeded in his 30-year passion project of making time travel a reality. However, in 1955, plutonium is a little harder to come by as it's not available at every corner drugstore. How much energy must be generated to send Marty McFly in the DeLorean time machine back to the future? Locked in. Locked in. Sure. Justin, how much energy was needed? 1,100 gigawatts. I don't know. Something gigawatts. Tom, how many were needed? 1.21 gigawatts. KJ. 1.21 gigawatts. Or gigawatts. Both are acceptable. In this round, Justin, you were close with the gigawatts, uh, but the, poor, the points will go to Tom and KJ. It is 1.21 gigawatts or gigawatts. Uh, I would have also expect, accepted uh, 12 million 100-watt light bulbs or 1,621,400 horsepower. Or one lightning bolt. Would you have accepted that? Uh, wow. Yes, that, it actually might produce more, but it would at least produce enough with the, the lightning bolts. Uh, so the reason I actually brought this one up is I, I, I thought it'd be a good way to uh, talk a little bit about our, our zany uh, Doc Brown, crazy scientist. Uh, but I also wanted to bring up the whole thing about the gigawatt gigawatt. As I explored this further over the years, I thought it was just straight up, they pronounced it wrong, okay? Like it was gigawatt and it was gigawatt and they said gigawatt. But after 
a, a variety of random internet searches, none of that could really be held as conclusive evidence. Apparently, gigawatt is an older pronunciation of gigawatt. However, Zemeckis was saying that they actually asked somebody and they just didn't know that it was incorrect. So the whole gamut is there. Yeah, so the, the story I read was that Christopher Lloyd pronounces it uh, gigawatt instead of gigawatt because physicists typically pronounce it that way, even though both are acceptable. That, that's something he brought to the table. Um, you know, because initially he had rejected the role and um, then his his wife at the time, I think he's, I think Christopher Lloyd's been married like five times or something, but his wife at the time convinced him to do that. And so he brought a few different characteristics to, to this person, including the, that pronunciation. As I said, there's a lot to talk about with this crazy uh, Doc Brown, but one of the things that always came up to my mind is why are they friends? Why is this teenager friends with this mad scientist that is pretty much the pariah of the whole neighborhood. Uh, any thoughts on how that works or anything else related to uh, his other creations? He's, a, he's an interesting character. All eccentric characters typically are. The, so the might one reason why they might be friends is that this guy has this great amp, right? We see at the beginning of the film for, for people who haven't seen it in a while, um, Michael J. Fox, before we even get a, a look at his face, goes to the doc's house to hook up his guitar before school and play on this extremely loud amplifier. That being said, the fact that they have give you no reason why these two people are friends, I think is, is kind of great. Uh, the film has a certain economy to it. It, it. it moves pretty fast. It tells the story it needs to tell in a dramatic way instead of, you know, it does use exposition, but it uses it more frugally than you know a lesser film might and so i think the fact that they're just friends accept it and let's move on is is perfectly good in my head canon to bring my head canon back to the show um marty comes from a pretty rough family all told right his mom's an alcoholic his dad um isn't a strong person through that you know marty's the third child so he may have found a father figure or may have found somebody to help him uh, you know, fulfill a need through Doc Brown by chance one day and then kept that relationship strong because it was filling a role that his family may not have been able to fill. Just an, an interesting guy, you know, to hang out with. You know, you go in his place, he's got a bunch of neat gadgets, the neighborhood loony guy. Just, you know, you want to get to know him. Even though this was his first invention that actually worked. He says, right? I believe so. Yeah, well, you know what's crazy about that? This was the whole era, and it wasn't just this movie, but I feel like in the 80s and early 90s, you, you had that like, like crazy tinkerer scientist. I even, like, I think it was later, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but you always had this person, and they always had like gears going and contraptions, like the, the contraption he made to feed the dog. Right. Like they're overly complex, but they somehow work, okay? And all his loony creations. Were any of the other creations that didn't work out, any of them jump out to you guys? Like the mind reading thing, of course, is the other one. When he goes back in time, Marty goes back in time, he runs into Doc Brown again, and the first thing they interact with is with regards to this uh, mind reading device that, that Doc Brown is coming up with, um, which, which doesn't work. Uh, it's, it's interesting in the, you know, the era before uh, computing, 
what why you have you have uh, mechanical and uh, mechanical innovations and also engine based innovations that seems to be the depiction of the future or the depiction of what science is it, it's it's um, gizmos which is this old history it's it's kind of interesting if you look back to the royal society does anybody know what that is no Oh, okay. So the Royal Society was established in 1660 in England, and it was this society for the study of science. And um, it was chartered by Charles II, and it still exists. It's like 360 years old. But it became, as the, you know, the 17th century went on, it became kind of a joke. It became like the crazy kooks go there and do like, it's like a place filled with Doc Brown. In Gulliver's Travels, actually, Jonathan Swift makes fun of it there this you know a scene where they go to a gulliver goes to a foreign land and there's a version of the royal academy there and it, it's interesting that trope is in literature from the 17th century and if you read literature from then there's a lot of doc browns back then <laughs> it's just like crazy people with wacky ideas who are who are so consumed with their interest in science that they don't fit into society anymore and that's the trope it's like you, you sort of reject them. I mean, we sort of love Doc Brown, right? He's, he's lovable, but he's also not part of the, the normal wave of things. And that is not something that's new to this. That's hundreds of years old. I feel like even the um, like steampunk style takes inspiration from that too, where they show that, and I think this fits more to the league that Tom's talking about, where they took innovation to a certain point but just thought it was really cool to uh, mechanize things and make creations. And they're just like, no, everything's gonna, like we wanna be as, in, as sophisticated and as intricate as possible, but we're not going past this certain amount of creation <laughs> or development. But it, it's, it just speaks to the, the failure of imagination, right? That what we think of as the future or what will be next, what will be the next big breakthrough, it's, we're never right. <laughs> or very few people are right. You know, and we're going to get into this more next week, obviously. But the idea that, that Doc Brown, through mechanation, would be on the, the cusp of scientific development, I mean, that's so wrong in retrospect. Uh, and and uh, that it's, it's, it's interesting um, that his kind of kookiness, he's probably, you know, more kooky than brilliant when we, we look back from our 2020 position. But as Justin said, he finally got something right. Yeah, sometimes all it takes is one. I mean, without that one, he would be completely kooky, loser. But he's, uh, to me, he's amazing to come up with that, with that one. Man. He redeemed 30, 30 years, yeah. 30 years since he banged his head and figured and, and, and thought of the it flux takes, capacitor. It just takes one. <laughs> there you go. I yeah. like it. Well, on that note, we're going to move on to number two, <laughs> which is uh, the, the categories are this is heavy and the power of love. I'm going to uh, let KJ choose. Um, let's do the power of love. It's time for question two. George McFly, an avid bird watcher, finally proves his worth to his future bride, Lorraine, at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. What was the pivotal moment that secured Marty's future? Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. Okay, so the pivotal moment is not the famous line, get your damn hands off her. The pivotal moment has got to be when... Um, Marvin Barry is singing Earth Angel and Marty's playing the guitar and Lorraine and George kiss for the first time. 
I had the exact same thoughts. It was the the first kiss. They're playing Earth Angel. A redheaded fellow cuts in, um, and then George, now filled with manly verve from being able to knock out Biff, uh, pushes said redhead away and kisses Lorraine. I concur. Okay, well, I concur with all you. <laughs> so everyone is going to receive a point. Uh, yes, you are absolutely right. Some people think it was when he stood up to his bully, Biff. Um, but really, it was the kiss that did it. Now, why did we come to that conclusion? That what, they kissed, and then what happened after that to make us all come to that conclusion? The photograph restores. And his hands, and he comes back up. Yeah, he's, for our, our home listener who hasn't seen this in a while, he carries a, a photograph of him and his two siblings, his brother and sister. And as things go wrong, the, fortunately for, for Marty, the, the brother and the sister start to dissolve and, and Marty last. And as he's playing the guitar on stage, he's starting to dissolve. And when uh, finally George kisses Lorraine, the photograph restores his, he stops dissolving. Um, and everything is okay. I loved that visual as a way to try to explain, um, well, their time travel rules don't hold up and they don't have to. They, they, the, it, it's not a hard sci-fi movie, um, but I loved the, the, the way they use photographs throughout the series to show, to, to add drama, to add the risk that these characters are going through. What, what's the rule? Uh, you're talking about the photo, and again, you're talking about how there's not hard science behind it. He's lucky his hand was the only thing that started to fade. <laughs> you know? Like, what's the choice of where that degradation happens? Because I think the brother loses his head right away, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think he got lucky with just the hand. The reason I wanted to bring this one up, too, uh, there's a, a, a few relationships in this movie, but I, I specifically wanted to explore the, okay, how do we explain this? The original present, the past, and the back to the future, which was the original present relationship between uh, Marty McFly's parents, that whole arc. It's, a, it's, it's actually a major part of the movie. Um, did we like how that was portrayed? Is there flaws? What are your thoughts on that whole sequence of those two? Something doesn't seem right. Like scientifically, uh, I don't know. I haven't thought it all the way through, but it's, I mean, if you go, yeah. <laughs> I haven't. Well, what, no, but you said something seems off. What is, what seems? Well, if you go back, well, first, I mean, how are you going to go back? And then one thing is you come back and you see yourself with the terrorists, you know, um, <laughs> That's, I don't know if that makes scientific sense. No, but I know exactly what you're talking about because he comes back to that sequence and he says his big solution at the end is, Marty, is to come back a little bit early. He comes back a little bit early and then the DeLorean runs out of gas. So he yeah. still doesn't get there early enough. When if you had a time machine, maybe I should come back a little <laughs> earlier <laughs> to get there. But you're right. And they do address that a little bit in the later films about, if you're can be in two places at once. Um, but in that movie, in the first movie, we, that's the, like, we, we have no, that's the first time we've really experienced the same person existing in the same place at the same time, which is weird, but I want to go back to the relationship between the mother and father. And I think KJ, you had some thoughts on that. Yeah. The relationship between um, George and Lorraine um, at the beginning, you can tell there's still, 
in love might be too too long too strong of a word um but they're, they're raising their kids they're doing what they have to do george is still going to work even though that's a pretty terrible situation lorraine's making it work with whatever um tools she needs george at the beginning of the film um has no self-confidence and is being rolled over all the time by Biff. But by the end, he's the one that's confident. He's publishing a book. He's no longer worried about what, what, if, what if what he wrote is no good and, and, and nobody likes it. He, he's, he becomes a person. He, he really uh, is able to do things. So for the McFlies, it was awesome. Now, for the Tannins, it's kind of a terrible movie, right? They, they start out at the movie with Biff. He's on top of the world. He's in good shape. Marty and the doc mess around with the timeline. And now all of a sudden the tannins who are maybe not the greatest people in the world, but their life is ruined. Yeah. But I think that was kind of uh, the universe coming back to equilibrium. They're bad people. So they shouldn't have good things happen to them, but I do understand what you're saying from that perspective. Um, But it is, and I'm sure we're going to explore that further in this, when we talk about our, our good pal, the the bully uh, of, of, of all uh, Biff. Yeah, the the movie postulates that all of our history can hang on a moment. And that includes our our psychology, the you know, the way you are in the world, the way you perceive the world, um also your you kind of your destiny, that it all can be located to the, this pinpoint. And if you're able to move the pin, not only will you you know, you seize an opportunity and, and therefore things in the future will change you will become a, a person in 30 years unrecognizable from the person you were before. Um, and the, the trilogy all does this. You know, we're going to see this again in, in the next two films. But it, it's um, probably not particularly accurate. I mean, I, I can't imagine. My own belief is that um, there's so many factors going into anything that what happens is probably going to end up happening regardless of uh, these few variables that you change. Um, but it's great storytelling because you can link everything in your narrative to this single action and then build dramatic stress around the correction or change in the action and already have revealed to the audience the negative consequences of failure. Well, I think this is the perfect time to go to our third category, which is, this is heavy. It's time for question three. Depending on your opinion, Back to the Future wonderfully spans the range of odd to awkward when it comes to one of its plot lines regarding the love interest of a young and supposedly innocent Lorraine Baines, who would play the part of Marty McFly's mother in 1985. However, in 1955, it's a whole other story. What are all the scenes in which it is apparent that this female lead has the hots for Calvin Klein, otherwise known as Marty by his friends? What we're going to do for this one is we're going to start with Tom and we're going to continue until all the scenes have been identified. And whoever is last or the last sequence of the round will receive the points. So the first one I'm going to give is probably the most obvious is when he is in bed and um, Lorraine is, is in the bed next to him after he was hit by the car and knocked out and uh, she's taking care of him, and it's revealed that he is not wearing pants, that she took his pants off, um, exposing his purple Calvin Klein underwear. Justin, which is another scene that represents her interest in the time traveler? 
Uh, I'll go with in, in the car at the dance. I guess, I mean, I, you kind of see it was a bad plan that he had to begin with. Like, I don't know if he thought, because earlier in the movie, she she had said, oh, when I was a kid, I didn't do that type of stuff, blah, blah, blah. So his plan was to get in the car and start putting the moves <laughs> on her and thinking she would, you know, I, I don't know what he thought because <laughs> clearly she already liked him. And uh, she was, she really just was all over him until they kissed and then she had the feeling that this is like kissing my brother. You know, Justin, you, you bring up an amazing thought that that plan was flawed from the get-go. Yeah, regardless. <laughs> it's, it's based on the misinformation he's gotten or the misperception, right? Which is the, the joke of the film is that in my day, I never did anything like that. Yeah. And then of course she's this- Park car. Yeah, she's this like sex spot. Um, you know, she's great in that role. Yeah. Like, I, you know, little pussycat girl. It's it's, it's a lot of yeah. fun. Yeah. And then she's dr- drinking <laughs> in the car. Yeah, he should have already figured that out, though, by that point. Yeah, you know, that was not... Plenty of indication that, that her, you know, what she said early in the film when she was older was not yeah, accurate. I think the line is, Marty, <laughs> I've parked before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, that is definitely correct. I'm going to turn it over to KJ. Do you have another scene? Absolutely. So um, Marty has a bit of a scuffle with Biff, ends up on a skateboard, and Lorraine declares, he's a dream. This is completely accurate. <laughs> and further uh, deepening why uh, we all know that she was in love with him <laughs> early on. I guess in that one, he wouldn't have known that dialogue. But there's other scenes that definitely show that. Tom, we're going back to you. Do we have another? We do. And the school, after Marty has gone back in time, Doc Brown and Marty go to the high school in order to convince George to ask Lorraine out. And when Marty introduces George to Lorraine, Lorraine ignores George entirely, goes up to Marty. When the bell rings, they run away and she goes, isn't he a dreamboat? I think there probably is more, yeah. All right, so one other one um, is when Lorraine goes to Doc's mansion um, to ask Marty to the dance. That is true. I have another one. <laughs> so in the lunchroom, um, again, Marty's trying to convince George to, to, to ask Lorraine out. This is the next day or later that day. We're not entirely sure. And um, Biff starts, uh, you know, uh, sexually harassing Lorraine, which is something that happens a few times in this movie. And, um, you know, Marty pushes him over, you know, grabs him, throws him off Lorraine. And then it's, you know, She's, uh, she's all woozy-eyed again. So another one, and this might be an extension of when Marty wakes up in his mom's room. Um, later on, they're down eating dinner with Lorraine's family. So that would be Marty's grandparents and um, uncles and aunt. I think there's, is there an aunt there? Um, and they're watching, is it Jackie Gleason? I don't exactly remember. But um, this again, I, I don't, I agree with you, Justin. I don't know how, why Marty didn't realize this and why he, couldn't figure out that his plan would be bad but Lorraine says he can stay in my room so here's another time where we got one more too kind of an extension pretty much the same scene I believe but she puts her her hand on his leg at, at the at the dinner at the dining table absolutely that was not subtle if she's supposed no. to be this shy Upper lady thigh. 
<laughs> yeah, yes, yes, yes. This was getting a little too close for comfort, especially based on the, the knowledge we know of their true relationship in the future. Um, are there any other ones? It's probably more, but... My, my list is exhausted unless we really get more granular. So I think, I think, we're, I think we're there. And, and you guys really hit the nail on the head with this one that sh Marty should have understood that plan yeah. would have failed from the get-go. Fortunately, because of his altercation with Biff earlier on, it still worked out and, and, and the timeline was, I don't want to say restored, but restored in the sense of Marty's lineage and par parents, but it also worked to their favor uh, a little bit there uh, in the end for the McFlies. Uh, I think I'm going to award everyone a point for that one because it was honestly a pretty darn good group effort, I think, getting to the end there. KJ, you may have squeaked through with an extra one in there, but I, I kind of lost track. We were all in the same kind of groupings there. So I think for that one, uh, again, it was a great team effort. We're going to give everyone a point. And we're going to close out round one with that question. Uh, we'll be right back after this quick, quick commercial break. Previously on Marlowe's Spliced Craze Lab Mystery. What's the case? Well, she says Splice Craze has kidnapped her husband. Any leads? Send in the dame. My husband went missing two days ago. Hmm. Do you think that Splice Craze could have anything to do with his disappearance? I thought so, but this morning I received a note. She extends out a thin white arm, decorated with scarlet nails. The red nails press between them a white piece of paper covered in polite black ink. Marlowe takes the paper and then reads, If you ever want to see your husband alive again, bring his super-secret files to the main offices here at Jeans Jeans by midnight, or else, and come alone. The letter was signed, Jean. Who's Gene? He's the owner of Gene's Jeans. He was always a jealous of those whiz kids over at Splice Craze Lab. He never could compete. That's why he wants the file. They're the new plans for Splice Craze Labs' greatest invention. The Upright Cat. The Upright Cat? That sounds fascinating. It is. Splice Craze's upright feline shakes hands, takes out the trash, and Goops his or her own litter, all while walking on just those back legs. Where can I get one of those? Anywhere genetically modified cats are sold. And we're back for round two. In round two, there'll be three more questions, and each one will be worth two points. We are currently at three points for Tom and KJ, and Justin is not too far off with two points. The categories for round two include back in time, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here, roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. Justin, I'm going to let you start it off once again. Which one do you want to start with? Make like a tree and get out of here. All of these questions will have subjective answers, and I will be judge, jury, and executioner, hopefully not the latter. <laughs> with these questions. So you're always going to try to find what you think, I think, will best answer the question. So there's a chance you'll execute us. It's time for question four. 
Biff Tannen, the lead antagonist, clearly has problems. We're introduced to Biff in 1985 after he wrecked George McFly's car, clearly flawed with the blind spot that caused his beer to spill all over him when the other car hit him. Uh, things don't get much better in 1955 with conflicts arising between Biff and the McFlies. What do you think is the most iconic Biff scene or moment in the film? Locked in. Yeah, locked in. Yeah, locked in, locked in. Okay, locked in. Tom, you had a lot of confidence there. What do you got? Crashing into the manure. I mean, I like when he gets knocked out. Even if it's not a great scene for him, but, well, I guess none of them are. Yeah, I also say the manure. I think the uh, the visuals of that manure being poured on him and that nice shiny car. And the point goes to Justin. The point goes to Justin. The reason is, while I do think that is an iconic scene with the manure, I think the scene where Biff gets knocked out by none other than George McFly, okay? This guy with no confidence, no abilities, picked on his whole life. He finally takes all of that and knocks him out. I think that is the best scene regarding Biff. Uh, I do think that the sequence with the manure is wonderful. And I'd like to just really explore a little bit more about what Biff's role is in this movie. You know, he's the bully and the conflict. Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard because the, the conflict really is is twofold. They have to get back to the future. Marty has to get back to the future. And he has to re-engage Lorraine and George. Um, and so, the, you know, you have these two conflicts working with each other. And there's this kind of constant hurdle, which is this this guy, Biff. You know, and Biff, by being kind of like pure evil, which he is, and he, he keeps getting more and more evil as the trilogy goes on, you know, you were able to see who we're supposed to like vis-a-vis uh, -vis Biff. Um, and he also becomes the, the challenge by which, in this film anyway, George McFly has to establish himself. So our, our secondary character, our secondary, secondary male character, George McFly, his challenge is Biff. And in order for him to, um, you know, kind of come into his own, in order to, for him to become the character we need him to become, he needs to get past the conflict of Biff. It, which is interesting to think in terms of, you know, classical comedies where what you would have is you have the main couple you know, in, in like a romantic comedy or any kind of comedy, you, you might have a main couple and then you'd have a secondary couple. Um, and so, you know, you'd have like in a romantic comedy, maybe Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, and then you'd have a secondary couple, which would be, you know, a little older, a little more goofball. Um, in this film, what's interesting is like the primary couple or, or grouping is Marty and Doc Brown. <laughs> obviously not a romantic coupling, but they have this, this sort of conflict that they have to work on together. And then the, the kind of the secondary couple is Lorraine and George, and, and their conflict is this entire other thing, which is this, you know, blonde bully. So would you say this is an early bromance movie? I know that come, comes up more in modern terms, but I think it is. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of is. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, yeah, because it's really not about, it's about, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a goofball film too, or a screwball, I should say, screwball film. There isn't a, a kind of romance that's primary to the story, right? It's about these two guys um, who, you know, kind of resolve their friendship. 
and that's even kind of misspeaking because their, their friendship isn't really in danger ever in this film. But there is a, a kind of, yeah, maybe like proto bro <laughs> romance comedy going on, uh, even though the relationship itself is never in danger. Well, I think the only time the relationship is in danger if Marty seeks to exist. That's, uh, that's the one time I would say. I, I think in this movie, Marty and Doc's relationship is pretty good, but I think the trilogy is where it really shines. I think in yeah. this movie, if there's a bromance, it's between Marty and his father, George. I think the dynamic uh, with Marty trying to encourage his father to be more confident and, and do the things he enjoys doing, I thought that was a wonderful story and a wonderful flip because it is the son helping the father before the father is the father. So I, I, I like their bromance. Is Biff the only antagonist in this movie? Pretty much. And his cronies. Yeah. I, one of whom is Billy Zane, of all people. Uh, Strickland. Yeah, I was going to say Strick, the, the principal. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's about it. I mean, the, the real conflict is... Uh, is Or oh, the Libyans, I guess. <laughs> 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 I think he. I think in that scene he says they gave him plutonium to make a bomb, and he returns some kind of casing with pinball parts in it. I'm going to turn over the next question to Tom. The remaining categories are back in time and roads where we're going. We don't need roads. Let's go roads where we're going. We don't need roads. And there will be a bonus question to follow on this one. It's time for question five. While released in 1985, certain movies like Back to the Future seem to pass the test of time. What film element, whether video or audio, do you think best exemplifies why this movie's relevance and impact still resonates with audiences today? You can cite specific scenes, techniques, or components from the movie. Locked in. Guess I'm going to be locked in. I don't like my answer, but I will take it. Once I locked in, I'm still working it out in my head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to start with Tom. I'm going to go with the score by Alan Silvestri. I think that score is, it, it sort of works the way the Jurassic Park score works, the way the Indiana Jones score works, these sort of big budget Hollywood films that even though I don't think it's honestly entirely answering your question as to why we carry this film with us in, into 2020. But I do think it captures the kind of the upbeat, off the wall energy of the film within the music and therefore encapsulates why we still like this film. My, my gut said, go with the score, like you said, Tom. But I thought about it and thought about it. 14 seconds while we're recording this podcast. And I, I think it's Michael J. Fox's charisma. I, I think the way he portrays Marty McFly, the way he interacts with George, the way he interacts with Lorraine, the doc, with, with all the characters, he's kind of like a beetle. Like you just, you can't not like him for his interactions with people. And I think that's why this movie stands up against the test of time. I'll just say like the, the excitement and, and the subject like it's just kind of timeless. I guess the arc of the story, you know, going back in time, see your parents, it keeps you pretty much locked in the whole time. There's some interesting, and, and it keeps it lighthearted, fun, you know, just a kind of a combination. So just to kind of summarize when I repeat these here, it's the 
story is relatable to all audiences? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely relatable to all audiences, and um, and you kind of might have an idea of, of where it's going, but you know, you just it's, it kind of locks you into just it's like a ride, basically. You know, you're you're along for the ride. So the three are the score, Michael J. Fox's charisma, and just being along for the ride. You're really it's a relatable to audience, and you're along for the ride. I like every single one of these answers. I think, and I want to explore each one of these a little further, but I would say that the score is probably the one because when it comes to branding or it comes to anything, you hear that and you are in the movie. Like you just, it sucks you in. It has the speed. Everything Tom said, I don't want to even elaborate further. I'm not always the one who's like, oh, did you see the, you know, the way they shot this at an angle or the different music or the background? Usually, actually, KJ, sometimes you jump in on, on those type items. This is one of those movies that I'm forced to appreciate that. And it's, it's super iconic. And I think it's something that doesn't just get pigeonholed to one generation. Like anyone who listens to it gets swooped up into the action, which then goes into what Justin was saying about being on this ride and right into the charisma of Michael J. Fox. I mean, yeah. they're all interconnected. Yeah, they're all but, interconnected, for sure. Yeah, I think that is the big one. But uh, I think Michael J. Fox made the movie as well. And I agree with that. Uh, originally, uh, the role was supposed to be, and actually they shot it. They started shooting with Eric Stoltz. And they thought he was playing it too seriously. And then Michael J. Fox was brought in, and they loved his portrayal. And I think all audiences have. Yeah, the music. I mean, I think every Spielberg movie usually has some type, you know, that that music that uh, goes along really well with it. I'm not sure if he chooses the music or what, but I don't, he was involved with. I don't know. You're, no, you're right because Zemeckis actually, and I often uh, forget the connection, but Zemeckis was one of the people from the Spielberg camp, so he like has a lot of those tie-ins uh, that have that same vibe. In fact. I believe KJ and I were talking about this offline and sometimes we forget that this isn't directed by Spielberg because it has that same look and feel, mm-hmm. but it's produced. Though, yes. Right? It, produced. Yeah. yeah. So, so what actually happened is uh, Spielberg actually produces a lot of Zemeckis's work. And I get that same timeless feel even the same I get from a, a movie we discussed earlier in the podcast, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. They just have a certain look and feel and the special effects still seem to hold up. So there's the score, which is wonderful, but there's also that small motif, bum, bum, bum. Like it's real little. Um, and we, my daughters and I started the third movie last night and the first frame of the movie is um, either presented by Steven Spielberg or directed by Robert Zemeckis. And they play that little motif. And my daughter said, I love these movies. Just from that small sound clip, not even the whole thing it, it that sound just brings you back right to it yeah a lot of the big budget movies will, will do that they'll have a, a motif or something that will be the the character's not song but a, a character's motif a light motif is is the you know the 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 term for that i i want to say too about the performance because i think that was the, the performance is um going through the history of the casting of this uh and and Stoltz gets thrown out and his career is kind of ruined after this. And, uh, you know, Michael J. Fox comes in, who's filming his television show during the day and doing this from like six to two in the morning. 
and then going back to his show at nine in the morning the next day. So he was doing both of those at the same, Family Ties was the name of the show. Um, and the original, you know who the original Doc Brown was? Uh, John Lithgow. Oh, I could see that actually. Yeah. I mean, I like Lloyd, but I, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that too. And I think they actually have a, a very similar energy. Tom, I, I thought you said John, or when you said John Lithgow, I was imagining John Levitz. <laughs> <laughs> Marty, we got to get back to the future. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, and I thought Lloyd was was great though. Mm-hmm. The facial expressions, you know, he says so much just with his, his face, you know, the surprise. You know, when he's behind the, <laughs> well, I guess it's no uh, video, but I was doing the face of him. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me a little bit of like, uh, and again, I'm, I'm deep in a Seinfeld rewatch right now. Uh, like some of the Kramer mannerisms too. Yeah. With the, the... <laughs> he could have copied them, you know, Kramer. Yeah, Kramer yeah it was, it's kind of based upon Einstein and also Leopold Stautsky, who was a, a composer who had this kind of, you know, th- those sort of mannerisms. Um, yeah, he always, I think Pauline Cal mentioned this in her review of it. He's always kind of looking off into the distance at nothing. He, he's, he's always kind of staring uh, at, at, you know, in, into, uh, into, into the back of his own head. Um, and part of that too, apparently, is that he had to crouch down a little bit to make uh, Michael J. Fox look taller. Because I think Michael J. Fox is like five five or something like that, and and uh, Lloyd is like yeah. six one six two. Um, and so a lot of the kind of the crouching over movements are also just to, to help Michael J. Fox look larger. Oh, that is funny. Now you were talking about how he was balancing filming. I, I, I know Teen Wolf also came out that year. I wonder if that also conflicted with that schedule. Because that was a big year for Michael J. Fox. I mean, that really put him on the map. Yeah, I, I don't know if he was doing Teen Wolf at the same time as, as Family Ties. Yeah, apparently the, the production process was pretty miserable because, you know, <laughs> you're filming. All this stuff was filmed at night until you got to the, the exteriors. It's time for a bonus question. Music was specifically commissioned for this movie by the band Huey Lewis and the News and would immediately lead to the single The Power of Love to make the Billboard Hot 100 chart as well as other accolades to follow. What three scenes featured this movie's signature sound? I have, t- I have two of them. Yeah, same, Tom. And I wonder with our power to combine if we'd get the three. Locked in, but one of them's a guess. I'm locked in at two. I think I'm locked in at zero. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to let uh, KJ start this one off. All right. So the 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 most iconic is the power of love when Marty's on the skateboard trying to get to school because Doc set the clocks. Um, is it 30 minutes off? Um, there's a great scene in that where the, there's a guy driving a truck and he grabs onto the back of the truck and the guy looks back and Marty McFly just kind of gives him this smile and wave and it's like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> um, so that's one. I'm assuming the end credits would be the second one. And but maybe that's even a guess. And then I'm going to go with the third one. I, the song is probably back in time. Um, is that uh, during the dance scene when Marty's got to get from one spot to another real quick? Those are my guesses. The the two the credits and the 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 famous one you know him 
on the back of the car on the skateboard after the clocks are 25 minutes off waving to the yoga yoga teacher um which i love i want i want to know that history between marty and the yoga teacher uh those are the two that i i'm pretty confident in if we're going to go with a random guess for for number 3 i'm going to go with um it's got to be like a a feel good thing i'm not going to take a random guess i'm just going to go with two <laughs> okay get them <laughs> okay the three are and and the tricky part is they also made back in time so there was another song that would come into the movie that was also by Huey Lewis in the news, uh, which was back in time, but we're specifically talking of the power of love. The skateboard scene to school is definitely where it starts off. And, and that's really from the beginning. In fact, you may have missed it, but in the beginning of the movie, they actually have like, you know, when they're talking about the actors and all that, they actually have a Huey Lewis in the news, power of love written out on the screen i had never seen it before except this time because i was looking for it like i was looking for details they got an oscar nomination for that yeah I think. yeah no it was it's it's amazing the second one which everyone missed was they play a rock version of it at the battle of the bands tryouts they play a rock version of it and the, and they say it's too loud and they don't get onto the battle oh of the is bands. that what he's playing there yes, yes. oh okay yeah. And then at the end, I don't know exactly if it's when they're flying back or if it's the end credits that you say. It's, it's right at the end when they're returning home, they play that song once again. The they play it over the end credits. As soon as yeah. the car vanishes. Yeah. The, yeah. So like the right at the, at the end, they play it. So those were, so unfortunately no points will be awarded, but I, I just thought it was a, a funny reference. And, and aside from the iconic music uh, score, uh, when I think of uh, Back to the Future, I think of the power of love. <laughs> so we have one remaining category, which is conveniently back in time, inspired by Huey and the, uh, Lewis and the News. It's time for question six. When traveling through time, it is very important not to take any actions that would unravel the very fabric of the space-time continuum, as it could possibly destroy the entire universe or at the very least, our own galaxy. What do you think was the most potentially threatening action taken by any character in the past that could have affected the outcome of Marty from 1985's future? Yeah, I think I'm gonna go with, with Locked In. Uh, locked In? Uh, I'll go with Locked In. Okay, everyone's very confident about this one. So I'm gonna start off with Tom. <laughs> so the, the, hypothetically, if, if I'm understanding this, if Biff had never attempted to, to rape Lorraine, then George would have never knocked Biff out and Marty would have never been born, which would be pretty consequential for the 1985 Marty McFly. Okay. Biff being too handsy. So the the rules of time travel in this movie don't hold up, and they're, they're it doesn't matter. But it's a lot of fun. So I think if Marty didn't line up his drive with that lightning bolt, he would have been probably stuck in fifty five for a while. That would have affected him greatly. So I'm gonna go with if he had missed the lightning bolt, he would have had to, uh, you know, gotten a job in nineteen fifty five and figured his life out. 
Uh, I'm going to go with if Lorraine didn't stop Marty uh, basically when, in the car when they kissed, if that continued. To- <laughs> oh, we're really going. <laughs> <laughs> and they made a baby. I don't know <laughs> exactly where that takes it, but I'll just leave it at that. Okay, it, it so disappeared. I guess like right. So as, things continue to get heavy. <laughs> yeah, I guess it would have just disappeared as it was happening. I don't know. Okay, these are all interesting and good answers. <laughs> I I actually need a moment. <laughs> <laughs> if he didn't disappear, that would have got really interesting. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a, that's a pretty pretty good answer. I mean, I think mine was predicated off the idea of what was most impactful for 1985 marty because you think if he's stuck in 55 you know exactly what like invest in ibm do do a part-time job put all your money in ibm and you know 1985 version of you will be nice and happy he's he's starting over but if he's never been born that's a lot more consequential (laughs) i'd rather you know have to start over in a in a foreign land than you know never exist (laughs) or or have sex with my mother, both, both of those. <laughs> but, but if he if he got his mom pregnant and then somehow his father did afterwards, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then still got back to the future. Yeah. He, that so, yeah, it'd be his slow cousin slash son. <laughs> a lot of interesting thoughts here. Yeah, sorry about that. A lot of outside, <laughs> no, a lot of outside the box. I am going to go with the one that would affect the continuity that the movie is trying to portray. And I think Tom will get the points for Biff being too handsy in the car uh, because that is what would make her make Marty's parents never come together. But the reason I, I wanted to ask this question is KJ brought it up even while answering the question. Time travel doesn't have to make sense in this movie. And that's what I really wanted to talk about. And even going through these questions right here, the reason I actually didn't go with Justin is there have been other movies, media, TV shows uh, where I've actually seen that plot line where someone was their own like grandfather or relative. Yeah, I think to be honest with you, they may even be referencing Back to the Future, but I'm pretty sure there was a Futurama plot line (laughs) that happened uh, with the main character in that where he was like his own grandfather or something like that. And he kept trying to connect who he thought was his grandfather with his grandmother and only after the fact found out that he was his own grandfather, pretty much. Robert Heinlein does that too. So Robert Heinlein's a science fiction writer from, from you know, I want to say that the 60s up to up to the 90s. And he also has a lot of, of things like that. There's one, it's a time travel story, but it also involves gender switching, where somebody kind of gives birth to themselves after. Oh, interesting. Yeah, after switching genders, and then going back in time and, and copulating with themselves, uh, which was made into a movie recently with Ethan Hawke, not, not a particularly successful one. But yeah, that, that motif has... Um, has existed before. So that's the reason I didn't give the points to Justin, not because it wasn't plausible, but because in that case, it wouldn't have been threatening. It would have been the actual course of action that may have made him be. Like you could look at an example where that that loop would have had to happen. Um, KJ's The Lightning Bolt, that one was a little trickier for me because 
in that scenario, the lightning bolt, missing the lightning bolt means he's stuck there, but was he supposed to be stuck there? Whereas the other one, he's not even born. Do we have any other thoughts about how they handle time travel? Yeah, honestly, I don't think it's it's even possible. Like, um, because it doesn't make sense, like, to really change the future. Because, it, it, I mean, it just doesn't make, like, how do you go back and change something that already supposedly happened, like a future? And I, I don't necessarily believe in, in time travel. I think that there is no such thing as time or space. You know, I think that's what they say in um, physics, like that time, time and space is not even real. Well, the, it's not that they're not real. I, I think what they would say is it's not fundamental, meaning that there's there that when you you scale down or look at some uh, at an extremely small length, those concepts of time and space stop making sense. This is the problem of quantum mechanics and, and relativity, right? That you you can't you, you don't have a quantum theory of gravity. And, and so the, you know, the Einstein thing is that that time is folded in with space. So as you move through space, you also, you also move through time. Um, but the film, what, what I like about this film and what I find kind of frustrating in other science fiction um, movies is that this movie just does not particularly care about providing you with the the scientific jargon to justify whatever they're doing. It's, you know, the first time we see Doc Brown, it, it's incredibly economic. The first time we see Doc Brown is him getting out of the DeLorean, him getting out of the, the time machine. Up to that point, we've heard his voice, but this person's just sort of in the background. Um, and and the movie is is far more concerned with the with with resolving these these kind of conflicts, these two conflicts of of um, getting the right people in the right place at the right time, standing up for yourself, et cetera, than it is with questions that maybe hard science fiction novels would be more engaged with. Well, we had another week of fierce competition over two rounds, and it looks like Tom just squeaked ahead with seven points to take down the first of three episodes. However, this is going to be a running tally. KJ uh, gets credited with three points for his efforts, and his buddy got four points. So that will go to both of them, and we'll see how the points all play out in the end. Well, so just to be clear with this obnoxiously fair thing, Tom and I are tied right now at seven. The guests are at four, and Nick is at zero. Nick is presently at zero, although that will all change next week. Uh, obnoxious fairness is very obnoxious, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of the podcast in which a group of B-side. KJ here from Talking Pictures Trivia, and I'd like to tell you about Talking Pictures Trivia B-side. Can't get enough of Talking Pictures Trivia? Head on over to our website, YouTube channel or where you normally listen to Talking Pictures Trivia to find the B-side, where we talk about the movies you love. Talking Pictures Trivia B-side goes further into the movies we talk about on this podcast and compares them to other media that has been on our mind. Here's a quick sample. It's a nice summer rain day, very appropriate to talk about Back to the Future. And what I want to talk about with regards to this film is not so much the plot of Back to the Future, but the depiction of science and scientific discourse in relation to a number of 
older plays in the late 17th century. Film and the time machine are both great metaphors for one another. Or we might say, since time machines don't exist, that film is a great metaphor for a time machine. Flip this record over by heading to TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, our YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to hear more on the B-side. It's time for Movie Rant! I'd like to add, just so I don't seem crazy, um, so t- yeah, time and space is real within this, re- but we don't know if this is the base reality. I would, that's what I would add. It is real as far as science has gotten so far. That's our best information, but we're missing a lot of information. And I don't think it's necessarily that this is the base reality. (laughs) I I think I know what you're saying, because there's even the the theory that if we're this advanced, there's a chance we're in a simulation. I think it goes into that type of thought process. Right. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that, either the simulation or something similar to like a matrix type of situation yeah, yeah. where where it's a virtual reality or you're in a simulation. Like, I, not that I, I mean, there's still a lot to be learned, but they're on to something, I think. You're saying there's a possibility. I, I completely. I think yeah. it's probable that it's something similar, like something like that. Wasn't it Elon Musk who said somebody said that we, he says it's like ninety ninety nine point yeah that we're in we're in a simulation or that yeah that most likely we're in a simulation unless we're going to be the first people to to make the simulation yeah but he said it's guaranteed we're either either one I don't necessarily agree with that because it could also be similar to to the Matrix where you're you know you're in basically um, we're really somewhere else and this is just a virtual reality type of thing uh, you know. Something like that. I almost when when these kind of conversations come up, I almost think of it's like the the ant farm on someone's desk. That's their world, and we're like viewing their world, and that's what it makes right. to to really break it down to simple terms. Yeah, because I mean, when you look at physics, n- none of this stuff, not nothing is. Re- I mean, it's all made of the same stuff. It's all electronics. Mm-hmm. Big Big Bang kind of makes sense yeah. more if you. I mean, how does everything come out of nothing? Kind of like a computer turning on, maybe. Uh, what comes first, the egg or the chicken? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're both there at the same time. Well, <laughs> what I will tell you <laughs> is, you know what? This is heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I could, <laughs> could, do, could do a whole podcast. Like, oh, that, no, that's good. Every week on that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, there's no one really, you know, we don't have the answers, but it's interesting to think about. No, definitely. There's a lot. And, and, and movies like this kind of, once you go a little too deep, you really can start thinking. Yeah, but but what do you guys think about? Um, you think time travel is actually to me? It just doesn't make sense that you can go back and change the present. You know, the, the previous present. I, I don't see how that's even. I can't wrap wrap my head around it. Like if it's, it's I just it doesn't make sense. I think me. from experiments, from what I've seen in some of the research, there is actually science about going forward in time, but I don't know about back in time. And what I mean by that, and I have a very rudimentary understanding of this concept, but when people go out in space, there have been studies where a twin is still on earth and a twin is out in space. And because of how much time they traveled, they've aged differently when they came back. The person who went out came back and was younger. I don't know the details, yeah. Yeah. So, so how that, that works is, so there's a, a few things. How that works is that 
time and space are wrapped together, right? It's a four-dimensional matrix, so, so to speak. Um, and so when you are traveling faster in space, you're also traveling faster in time. So we've done this experiment with atomic clocks, um, atomic clocks in orbit around the Earth, atomic, and, and the same atomic clock on, on the ground. And we notice an extremely small difference between those, those two clocks, the reason being gravity. Gravity, if you want to imagine it like a, a trampoline, um, you know, space and time like a trampoline, heavier objects press down and create different formations for space, right? So if you're moving around a, a gravitationally heavy object, it's going to take longer than, than not because you have that kind of uh, dip down, so to speak. This is not something you can imagine. It's a four-dimensional thing. We don't actually, it, it's mathematical. We can't actually physically imagine it. The second thing I would say is that, hypothetically speaking anyway, time travel to the past is possible and does happen, but only at the quantum level. Particles can move in, can and do move in every direction possible, including different directions in time. Um, and so when you're looking at subatomic particles, that is possible. But aren't we just particles though? Yeah, but when you when you scale up, it doesn't make sense. And it, like we don't we don't know the we don't know how to join that observation about the subatomic to these larger macro observations. That, that that's the problem. That's the great gap in physics is quantum and gravity. So quantum theory of gravity doesn't exist because we can't can't answer those questions. Yeah, based on my limited knowledge and again on that of actual what could happen, I still stand in the camp of maybe we can go forward based on some of these space examples back because it's at the subatomic level. I, I think this may have been what Justin was trying to allude to there too, was aren't we made up of all these subatomic particles back? I don't know if we'll ever get to that part to have any meaningful backwards, but I think due to speed, yeah. we can go forward. Yeah, I mean, if when you're going forward in, in space, even when you're driving a car, if you were to drive a car, I mean, we, we all drive cars, right? So you are actually, in theory, and well, not in theory, yeah. in actuality, time traveling to the future because you're moving faster in space. Now, you're time traveling to the future, you know, maybe if you drive at 70 miles an hour your whole life, you'll time travel a fraction of the second to the future. So, you know, it's maybe not worth doing, um, but there's still in movement when you're moving, you are, um, you're, you're moving through time at a different place. There is no road sign for time. There is no base time. Time is relative to the motion you are involved in. So time is not fundamental. There is no, um, there is no God's eye view of time. Does that make sense? There's no metronome in the sky. Yeah, and and going forward does make sense because it hasn't happened. I mean, I can I can grasp that, but I just can't wrap my head around going backwards and changing what's already happened. It's just not that I can't. I, I just can't well, understand. Well, what that. I would also tell you too is also if you made a change, what would that one change the frequency be? Whereas here, it's a little bit more. I changed x; it it, it moves y. Whereas the other theory is the butterfly effect, which is, you know, if a butterfly flutters its wing over here, it could create enough uh, momentum to create a tsunami across the, the globe. It's the same thing. If you go back in time and you step, you step on one bug 
how would that change yeah. the whole timeline of the future? So I feel like Back to the Future actually takes a pretty tame view of alterations in the past yeah. to affect the, the future. I guess it is possible, yeah. Yeah, so another another thing to to mention, and I, I'm trying to remember now the, the person who, who hypothesizes this, um, is that when you, you look at uh, quantum theory, particles aren't in one place or another, they're in every possible position, probabilistically. So it is 40% in this position, 20% in this position, and it is in all of those positions simultaneously. And it is taking every single path to get from point A to point B at the same time. People observing this have come up with different observations regarding how the, this functions in time. And there's a few of them, and I'm trying to remember which, which pair of scientists, uh, or a pair of physicists rather, came to this conclusion, but that every probabilistic location of a particle is a kind of a different world. So this would be like the, the multi-world interpretation. And so when we're talking about time travel, you wouldn't be, you know, on, on one plane, so to speak, going back and forth, but, but it may be able to move from one world to another world. Right, because if if a particle is forty percent in this place, twenty percent in this place, ten percent in this place, etc., it's not that it is in all of these superpositions simultaneously, even though it is, but it's also the fact that these various worlds exist in an infinitely large tree of infinitely of infinite branches, each branch representing a particular timeline. According to physics, everything's happening the same conversation we're having now is happening somewhere else at the same or, or, time. It's hypothesized, right? Because you're, you're trying to explain bizarre phenomena that have yeah. no... And particles be behave differently when they're observed. Yeah, so that, that's the thing. When, have when you seen they that, observe... that experiment where the, the, the ball goes ar around the... And then when someone's looking at it, it goes through. Yeah, it's the split-screen experiment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's, that's where that's we... Wild. Yeah, we know that observation itself... Um, is. Right. is taken into account. The particles take into account observation. Um, so consciousness becomes this kind of very important aspect to, to yeah. physics um, or, or measurement, I should say. Uh, but yeah, so that would be another, I wish I remember the names of the scientists, but it, it's not, not coming to me. Um, but yeah, but that, that might be an option. Um, but I think the way science is used in this is not... It's not really an exploration of the science itself, but it, it's more focused on the role or the context into which we place scientific adventure and, and scientific discovery. I think that's probably far more a, a far more rich topic to engage in. Not the, the science itself, but I think the the marvel of science of, of what science can do. That kind of um, you know, open mouth wonderment, that, that type of thing is what is being examined or looked at in this film. I don't think it's doing it particularly critically uh, in a critical way, mostly because I don't think this film is doing very much in a critical way. Uh, it's, you know, um, it, it's, it's just kind of a romp. It's a fun romp. Um, but there is something interesting to think of um, scientific discovery as parlor trick, so to speak, as opposed to um, either giving us knowledge about how the world works or providing us an, an economic avenue, which are kind of you know the two the two things. You know, it's kind of like the uh, 
the moon launch, right? Which doesn't have that much economic gain. It also, you know, we learned some things from rock, moon rocks about how, how the, the solar system was created, et cetera. It's age specifically, but you know, really, really not that much. Um, and I was reading up on this and especially looking at a, a great comparison was the um, the Wells novel, H.G. Wells's novel, The Time Machine, which is is published in, in 1895. And um, that's the first time we get time travel that the the time traveler is kind of controlling time via a, a mechanism. I mean, you can think of like a, a Christmas Carol, right? Which is, uh, I think, 1843. And there's time travel there, but it's kind of like, it's a little different. Um, and what we have with this kind of Victorian uh, machine, this kind of, this idea of, this idea of science as something we all come into the room and we watch. It's a sideshow type type event. And that's what happened, that is what happens in, in Wells's novel. Um, you know, they, they all come in and watch the, the grand professor um, display, exhibit his, his thing. Uh, and it's it's kind of interesting because this idea of time travel in Wells's work, which is echoed here, also comes in right around the start of cinema. So if you think of like um, Thomas Edison, right? Uh, kinetograph is what he calls his camera, which comes which ex uh, invents in I think it's 1893. So right within a few years of of Wells's work. Um, and what is what is cinema initially? And if you know anything about uh, kind of the initial uh, phases of cinema, it's this sideshow. So if you ever watch like Thomas Edison movies, you know, there's um, a heavyweight boxing match, um, which is interesting because they had to keep moving the ring to, to catch the sunlight. Um, and then very famously, the, the Lumiere brothers who had this shot of a train driving, you know, at the camera. And it was, it was played at, you know, carnivals as a sideshow. And then people would go, ah, and kind of duck because the train was coming at them. And um, I, I wonder if our role as kind of marveling at, at the time machine and our role as people sitting in the theater, if that they're kind of linked in a way, right? This idea of, of the cinema and kind of this, you know, time traveler or, you know, fill in the blank, right? For whatever technological innovation you want. If they both um, are sort of spawning from the same place, this kind of sideshow carnival type thing. And I was, you know, wondering what people thought of that. Well, the idea of being able to capture memories in an objective way where there's no question about whether or not that happened because you have a picture of it or a movie of it, um, it, it, it very much so feels like time travel and it must have felt like time travel when it first came out. Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What am I looking at? Something that happened in the past that you captured on this piece of paper? That's incredible. So yes, I, I absolutely agree. However, in Back to the Future, because you're able to influence that, it might be a little different because you know, it doesn't matter how many pictures you take, you don't change any point of the timeline that picture does not affect anything. Um, so that would be the only difference I would see between our, our duo in the DeLorean um, and cinema as a time travel device or pictures or, or even audio, you know. Um, and, and to just a, uh, a 
another thought on that. It only lasted from, I guess, the late 1890s until Photoshop. And now pictures and all these things are are no longer uh, objective. And I mean, Photoshop's probably too far along. Like you could always manipulate pictures, but it's interesting that now we don't trust anything we see anymore. Even in initial films, like if you look at um, like George Millais, right? Who was one of the first, um, the first filmmakers to use special effects. Right, and you'd have this, he had this kind of greenhouse that was filled with light so he could light everything. But you know, that was the, that was the shot to the moon, right? That, that movie where they like rocket to the moon and it hits the, the man in the moon's eye. You know, that's George Millais. And he made a lot of uh, films like that, uh, many of which are lost, a lot of which have been re remarkably recovered, um, where you would see like somebody disappear, right? He was the kind of the first person to do that. Like you would edit the film so something would disappear. And so, and this is pretty quick. I think this is the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and so kind of the, the idea with Malays isn't, I don't think so much a narrative. I mean, they're not particularly long, so you can't make a complex narrative, but it's, it's look at this magical thing happen. Look how we can depict um, an underwater world that, that doesn't exist, but we could, we could kind of bring it into reality. And, you know, I think a lot of, um, Back to the Future, the, this initial episode in Back to the Future is about um, science and cinema as Marvel, as kind of separated from the economic means, separated from um, producing knowledge for us, right? You know, because cinema doesn't, or you, I guess you could say it produces knowledge, but a different type of knowledge. It's not fact-based knowledge, right? It might be discursive knowledge or social knowledge, but it isn't, um, you know, it isn't that uh, whatever gluons plus past the strong nuclear force, right? <laughs> like, you're not going to learn that from a movie. Um, yeah, I, I think that to me was what was kind of interesting, like looking back on um, how time travel is depicted in history. That it's a fairly, that it comes along with the advent of cinema. So one of the things my my grandfather used to ask, um, he, he would bring up two things, um, like maybe the Civil War or World War II, and he'd ask, do those seem like the same long time ago to you? And depending on your age and who you are, you might say, yeah, the Civil War and the World War II and World War II seem like the same long time ago. And he'd, well, they're not. Like, they were completely separate times. And he'd, um, So we, we, the most recent watch through was with my daughters, and a lot of the jokes fell flat because the 80s and the 50s kind of felt like the same long time ago to my daughters. Uh, the one specific scene, Marty's in 1955, he's in the diner and he's going to use the payphone and his Timex watch beeps. And the owner of the diner or the guy running the diner looks at him and my daughters are like, why is he looking at him? And my wife and I were like, well, they didn't have beeping watches back then. What do you mean they didn't have beeping watches? Like what's the big deal that a watch beeps? So I also wonder how this movie will hold up as the 50s and the 80s become the same long time ago to people. What, what's, what's kind of interesting to me along that line of joining the 50s and 80s into the long, long ago is how the nostalgia industry, so to speak, works. And I don't mean industry just like in making money or something like that, but, you know, the, the, the rarefication or the... the the love of kind of the old. Um, and we're, I think now at the era where the eighties has passed into that, 
where it's, you know, the 80s are old enough that we can be nostalgic for the 80s. Um, and looking at this film, what's interesting is the, the 80s world is a little beat down, right? You know, when we see the, the 80s, yeah, Hill Valley, that when we see Hill Valley in the 80s, it's a, it's a little, I wouldn't say rough. It's not a, it's not a bad town, but it's, it's not, it's not glossy certainly and then the 50s is um brand new you know as soon as he walks into the yeah oh it's brand new it's it's bright it, it is it is what people who you know who are uh, excited for nostalgia think right like that's the nostalgia lens it's you know kind of true though a lot of suburbs were built right in that time in the u.s mm -hmm. yeah and it, it's new for it's like a baby boomer thing yeah. Right. As we can now afford houses. Let's have 80 kids because we're, we're the Nazis didn't kill us. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And so it is shiny and new, the suburbs. But, you know, obviously it isn't like a perfect thing or whatnot. I'm sure like the 50s are a lot harder for people than the 80s or today was. Um, and yet the movie has this kind of nostalgic love for for the 1950s. And, uh, you know, we kind of do that today, too, as this kind of idyllic time. Yeah, but it is it is interesting watching now the 80s become this thing, you know, like television shows take place in the 80s in order to 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 cash in on that nostalgia vibe that's going on. And it's also like the differences between our world in the 80s and the 80s and the 50s seem far more dramatic. I don't know. What do you think of, of that? I think they are. I mean, technology has exponentially increased, which you know, change a lot of things. Yeah, I agree. It feels that way, but I wonder if it always feels that way. In other words, in 30, well, maybe even less, but in 30 years or even in 10 years, are people going to say, oh man, no, this 10 years, that was the one that really made the difference. So. Well, it might just keep increasing exponentially. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. Yeah. But the, 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 I, yeah, I think it's kind of like maybe, so there's that nostalgia thing, right? And but there's also the the kind of the inability to differentiate time periods as being significant that you're you're talking about with your daughter. But the the the, the similarity of the the 50s and the 80s world was it still surprised to me. I know what you're saying, Gage, that it's like maybe everybody thinks that. Um, but you know what are, what are like the big differences? There's a beeping, the watch beeps. Um, Color television. Yeah, you have color television, and you could afford VH VHS. Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, the, yeah, the VHS thing is uh, is a big thing. You could have mm -hmm. multiple televisions, so costs yeah. come down. Um, but but other than that, I mean, it's it's what we're given of these two worlds is one is glossy and bright and idyllic, and the other is not necessarily criminal, used or not as appealing. I mean, the movie seems to want seems to want you to want to be in the 50s yeah which is, is certainly relevant today right there's this this kind of this idea of i think i mean there was a, a bigger middle class back then i mean overall yeah technology and they say everything our life is easier and better but it seems like there was a, a much larger middle middle class but I do think it's not so much is it literally true that there's a larger middle class. It's do we think of it as I think people think of it as being true, yeah. right? That there was this robust middle class um, occurring in the '50s that isn't isn't there today. And regarding things were newer, yeah, were more grateful. Mm -hmm. I think at that time, yeah. like oh, this is you know now people are seem to be more 
spoiled as time goes on. Yeah, I, I think it's less interesting to me if that's literally true, as opposed to is that the story we tell and, and prize? And I think like the big middle class or the growing middle class, the um, the more ethical suburban family-based society. I don't know if that's more true in the 50s, but we certainly talk about it as if it's more true in the 50s. And I think that that's interesting to me. And I think the movie's somewhat doing that as well with its its more gloss version of 1955. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More old school values yeah. type of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to once again congratulate Tom. He's not the winner for the week, but he is leading the pack for the trilogy. So best of luck. Next week, I finally get some points on the board. I'd also like to thank Justin for joining us today. Justin, where can people find you on the internet? Well, my, my wife has an amazing natural soap business, uh, Charm and Cheer. You can find that at www.charmn c-h-e-e-r.com and uh yeah some some really great uh, natural soaps and shampoos all natural products and check it out sounds great uh kj I'd, I'd once again like to thank you for all the efforts you put into masterfully crafting these episodes i'd also like to acknowledge imdb which is a great resource for movie information check out our website talkingpicturestrivia.com for more information about us and our episodes you can find us on apple Podcasts, google play spotify and stitcher as well as our youtube channel we are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us if you like what you hear remember to like and subscribe to our show Join us next time when we tackle the next installment of the trilogy with Tom leading the charge for Back to the Future Part 2 from 1989. It's going to be a good one. See you then. Ding, 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 ding.